Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is part two of my two-part interview with Michael Conley, the author of the Bosch and Lincoln Lawyer series. He is the best-selling author of 38 novels. He sold over 85 million copies of his books worldwide. He's also the executive producer of the Bosch and Lincoln Lawyer TV series. Now, if you missed part one, after you listen to this, go back and check that out. He talks about his beginnings. He talks about selling Bosch and creating Bosch. And this week, we're going to talk about the Lincoln Lawyer, some other characters, and uh, his process. So if you're a writer and you want to know what's it like to write a novel, well, this is the week for you. We'll also get into his transition between being just a novelist sitting alone in your lonely room to being in a writing room with a whole bunch of other people. So a lot to talk about this week. Part two with Michael Conley right here on Hollywood and Levine. Let's talk about The Lincoln Lawyer which also became a, a movie and a TV series. But that was a departure for you because this was a character who was not a cop. This was a character who was a lawyer. Talk a little bit about uh, creating Mickey Haller, the Lincoln lawyer. Yeah, I mean, it's we write by instinct most of the time, what, what you think is the best thing to do. And even though I was having growing success with Bosch, it was not an overnight success. You know, the books were growing in sales incrementally, but some, and my publisher wanted more and more and more of Bosch, but something told me that I would burn out on that character if that's, if he was my entire writing life. And so I've always thought of, you know, whereas Bosch is the center of the wheel, I've always thought of other spokes and, and to try other characters. And so some of them you just mentioned. So I'm always on the lookout for that. I'm also have this level of understanding that um, I have an opportunity here as a, as a former journalist, there's a lot of journalism in my books and I'm trying to be from the first book, get it right, to be as accurate as possible about the processes, um, uh, the places, and also the internal um, processes as well. And, you know, it's all under the umbrella of the legal system. So why not show an opposite side of it? So for a long time, I'm not a lawyer. Um, and a lot of lawyers were like John Grisham and so forth. People that had actual legal experience were kind of the kings of the uh, the legal thriller market, if you will. Scott Terrell is another one, great writer. Um, so I was a little bit intimidated. I did cover courts for a long time in, as part of my career as a journalist. 
and I have some lawyers in my family, but, you know, I, for a long time, I sat on the sidelines saying, if I ever get the right idea, um, I'll, I'm going to take a swing at that, that classification in the overall genre. And one time I went to the Dodgers game, a Dodgers game, an opening day in April, uh, it was opening day in April, 2000. And, um, you know, it's always on a Tuesday. It's a day game. I'm sure. you. Yeah, brought- I was there. I was hosting Dodger talk. Yeah, I was there that day. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, you see a lot of guys in white shirts and ties because it's a day game on a weekday and they play hooky from whatever their job is in downtown. And I was sitting next to a guy wearing a, a white shirt and a tie. And so I was probably kidding him because I was wearing a Dodger shirt. And look at me, I'm an author. I work at home and I can go to games in the middle of the day if I want. Anyway, we got into a conversation and it turned out he was an attorney. I had covered courts in Van Nuys and San Fernando and other places um, in my days as a journalist. So I asked him, you know, where his office was because there were so many courthouses in L.A. County that would tell me kind of what orbit he was in. And he said he works out of his car. And um, it's, you know, I probably made some kind of physical moving away from him. Like, you not must not be a very good lawyer. And he's and he wanted to win me over. So he told me all the stuff he does and how he has his car equipped with a copier. And like he always takes on t- uh, cases that have uh, wiretaps because he can play the cassette in his car while he's driving in L.A. traffic and gets paid for it, you know, billable hours. He told me the whole thing. And so I left that game knowing this could be the what I need uh, um, an entree into that um, world where I was a bit intimidated. Um, so that was the origin of it. But then I went to my college roommate who was a who was a journalist with me. We were roommates uh, working for papers in South Florida together. And then he went off to law school and we lost touch. And I something I forget how I found out. It was like a big case. I think it was a guy who stole moon rocks from NASA. And I saw his lawyer's name, Daniel F. Daly. And that was the same name as my roommate. So I reached out to him and we reconnected. And he was a defense attorney. So he allowed me to take my idea I got at Dodger Stadium and be a fly on the wall in his life on and off for about four years before I felt I had enough uh, information, inspiration, and anecdotal stories to write the first book. And that's where it came from. As opposed to Bosch, where, again, I didn't uh, really picture Titus Welliver. I have to say, for Lincoln Lawyer, like, yeah, Matthew McConaughey was sort of dead on. (laughs) That's really the way I picture that guy. It's funny when I it's funny, this goes against what I said to one of your earlier questions where I don't um, picture someone in the early stages of writing Lincoln Lawyer. I wanted him to be very much of L.A., so I made him Mexican-American. I didn't lean into that because that's not my experience, but I gave him a backstory of his mother being an actress from um, Mexico. And. in, when I when I was writing it, I had this idea that he I wanted this guy to be. Uh, now I can't think of the name. What's the name of the lawyer in The Kill a Mockingbird? Atticus Finch. I wanted him to be Atticus Finch with a ponytail. That was my short um, log line to use a Hollywood term for this okay. character. And 
somewhere along that line, I, I watched a Oliver Stone movie um, based on one of my heroes, Lawrence Block's books called uh, something like Six Million Ways to Die. And in it, um, sorry, I always forget names. He's uh, a really good actor. Um, anyway, he played the bad guy. He's Cuban-American, this actor. But he was playing Mexican-American, and he had a ponytail. So I started um, Andy Garcia. Sorry. Uh, apologize to all the people. I always forget names um, when I'm <laughs> on the spot. So in the early stages of writing that book, I was picturing Andy Garcia from that movie where he had a ponytail. And uh, so that was in my head when I first wrote the book. And then I was seeing a little bit of my friend, my former roommate, who was a defense attorney and had a ponytail. Um, And so there was a mixture of a real person and a real actor and all that. And so that's what I was thinking when I wrote the book. But then, um, sorry, are these long answers? No, these are great answers. These are terrific answers. So so one day... um, my wife and I go to the movies and it, the movie is a comedy called Tropic Thunder or a satire, I should say. And Matthew McConaughey plays this kind of sleazy agent to Ben Stiller. And we're, I literally whispered to uh, into my wife's ear while, when McConaughey was doing his thing in that movie, he would be a good Mickey Haller. And then I think it was about two years later, I got word that, uh, that he is going to be Mickey Haller. So, so I was really happy with that. And, and I think his performance was fantastic. And in business that did a lot for me that really um, changed my, uh, I don't know what you call profile, I think in Hollywood and also in publishing, because that movie made at that point, I think there was four Lincoln lawyer books. They all hit the bestseller list after that movie came out. So it was very, important moment in my life yeah it's all perception in hollywood one thing about that movie that struck me was that it was i'd say 90 percent faithful to the book to the story and the plot and the turns of the book oftentimes once these things are adapted they change considerably but that really held true to the book to what you wrote yeah no i mean it it, you know obviously it's a shorthand there's a lot of the book not in it but what they culled from the book i thought was a real marvelous adaptation and you know to be honest it didn't start that way um and i knew i happened to know coincidentally the the screenwriter who got the job john romano because we had a friend in common who was a professor at UCLA and we, he would bring us in to uh, kind of be guest lecturers sometimes on the same day. So I knew John. So it was unusual that out of all the screenwriters in Hollywood, they hired uh, somebody I knew. And he went through uh, several years of um, redoing the script. I think the one they actually shot was maybe the ninth uh, rewrite. Mm-hmm. And somewhere, somewhere in that process, and John John would not mind me telling the story. Um, I mean, because I've told it before with him. Um, and I, so I was pretty heavy handed in my notes. We were talking about giving notes because the script was straying too far from the book. And at some point, this was not John's doing, but the producers cut me out of the loop. 
because I was this guy who was uh, a thorn in their side. Welcome to Hollywood, Michael. Yeah. (laughs) So so I think two or three years of silence went by. And I get a call from a friend who I know, a good friend of mine says, my friend, Matthew McConaughey, just signed up to do Lincoln Lawyer. And I didn't even know that. That's how I found out through a friend, not through an agent, not through the producers, not through anyone. I said, well, that's interesting. Um, I haven't (laughs) seen I haven't seen a script in a few years. And he said, well, Matthew wants to talk to you. And uh, so that we were connected and I, and he wanted to have uh, lunch with me the next day. And I said, that's all fine and good, but I haven't, I don't know what script you committed to. Uh, I haven't seen a script in a few years. So he sent it to me and I read it overnight. So I could come to lunch um, knowing what I was talking about and had uh John Romano, only name on the script. And there were stuff that I had seen before, but the script had been rewritten probably a few times since I'd been involved. And it was wonderful. I loved the script. So I went from being like, ah, shit, we got Matthew McConaughey. And the last script I saw, I didn't think it was going to work. And now in the space of 24 hours, I find out Matthew's in. He wants to meet me. Here's the script. And I get super excited because the script's really good. And and they did a great job on the movie. So let's talk a little bit about your process. How long does it take you to write a novel? It really depends on who I'm writing about. I can write a Harry Bosch novel in probably about seven months. Lincoln Lawyer books take longer because uh, there's actually more to research. Um, you know, cause you don't want a bunch of lawyers coming out of the woodwork to your website or Twitter or whatever, telling you how you got stuff wrong. So, so I really do way more research, um, on Lincoln lawyer books. And then if you branch out and do something new, that always takes the most time because you're setting the, the, uh, the underpinnings of character. And that's, that's really important. So I know I haven't done that a lot. The last one I did was six years ago where I introduced um, Renee Ballard, the cold case detective with the LAPD. But what made that process easier or that book, those books easier, they're also in that range between seven and 10 months. Do you write um, one at a time or as you're writing this Bosch book, you're doing research on the next Lincoln lawyer? No, I usually just do one thing at a time. I usually get the ideas for other books, but I don't drop everything to research them or something. I just kind of put that in my back pocket and keep writing the project at hand. The Ballard books I was going to say are are single source inspiration. Bosch came from so many detectives I've known over the years as a reporter and so forth. So he was a conglomerate of real detectives, fictional detectives, movie detectives. So he came from everywhere, but Renee Ballard is there's a, the the detective who runs LAPD's cold case squad. I've known for a long time since she was, um, you know, a, a straight homicide detective before she kind of became uh, in charge of the unit. And she's the inspiration for Ballard. So when I have questions about like how would you do this or what would you say in this situation, is this this okay procedure that kind of stuff, I go to one person. And that really streamlines the process as well. Well, you and I were picketing Paramount 
and I asked you if you outlined and you said no, which floored me because your books are so intricately plotted that I would have thought, oh, this guy's got a, a bulletin board with 5,000 three by five cards posted up there. And yarn. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, well, what's an outline? What I do is I have a lot of stuff gestated. Like, uh, like I said, I put it in my back pocket and, you know, I get, I get a lot of stories. I, I, some people will call it research. I don't, maybe it's social research. I spend a lot of time with the kind of people I write about detectives and defense lawyers and prosecutors and things like that. Everybody's a good storyteller. And I, these stories filter in. And if I have any kind of artistic genius, I think it's evaluating what comes in and what is, what could go the distance as a book. What's an anecdote what's a good piece of dialogue, that kind of stuff. And so I kind of carry it around, but I don't start writing a book till I have in my head, at least where it's going. In other words, this would be the bait, how I would open this story. And this is how I'm going to close it. And then I start writing and, you know, maybe my first draft is you could call it an outline, but it's a, you know, a 400 page outline. Um, so I write the whole thing and then I go through it again and I, I add complications. I hide stuff in the rewrites, you know? Um, and so, you know, maybe some people would call that an outline. I don't know, but my, my first draft is always my longest and I call it down to just what is needed as opposed to any kind of too much flourishing of, of stuff. Well, two things I love about your writing. Number one, I cannot outguess you. I have yet to read a book of yours where I've gone, okay, I see where he's going. I see what, what's what's happening here. You you always find a, a twist that's always plausible. And uh, it, it, it's like magic. It's like I love to be fooled. I, I, I know it's a trick, but I, I love how you pull it off. I guess that's what I mean by saying it's mystical, but... I mean, that's, that's a high compliment from someone who does this, you know, who, who, um, so I appreciate that. I don't know if I'm always successful at that. And then you have this, I, you know, you're always looking to do something new and don't do the same thing. You know, if Harry Bosch is static from book to book, then the series is really dead. Um, so you're always trying to figure out another challenge or just another way of doing it. So the book that I have coming out, later this year um is not a whodunit at all it's like it's kind of like you the the smart reader or even a not so smart reader will guess that part um pretty early in the book and it's more like it's really about bosch and Haller proving how they can prove someone did it not that they they know who did it they just have to figure out how to prove it no i know some of your books the the killer is a mystery other books like the one where they were facing the poet it's like you knew the bad guy it's just how are they gonna put it together we'll circle back to that but the second thing that i mentioned that i love about your books is you know alfred hitchcock coined a term icebox logic 
which is you go to see a movie and you love it and it's great. And then that night you go to get something to eat and you go to your uh, refrigerator and you go, hey, wait a minute. How did she know about this? (laughs) You know, where it's like, yeah, it's a flaw in logic, but people aren't going to think about it until later. And you go out of your way to attack any logic issue and in a lot of cases you even have the characters bring up the question themselves and um i i love that about your books well thanks yeah i mean i'm very familiar with that phrase and it's talked about in our house a lot when we go to films and so forth so you know you every writer brings everything that they've consumed as a, as a reader and you know synthesizes what you know what they do and so i'm aware that i don't want to have those um logic questions um have validity if they're thrown at me um i'm not saying I, i'm successful every time but but it's something i try to pay attention to for sure you write yourself into corners from time to time and you know it's just go, okay how do i get out of this one yeah, I mean, there's um, that's the risk of the no outline approach. Um, I do that all the time. I I haven't written a book yet that I didn't throw out a lot of pages because I did write myself into a corner, or I realize eighty pages later that the logic that I put back there does not work with what I'm doing here. So you have to either throw out pages or go back and retool that kind of thing. Yeah, I once asked Neil Simon, and he said he didn't outline either. And I was very impressed. And he said, you know, don't be. He said, I have a drawer full of 30-page plays <laughs> that just stalled where I realized, nah, there's nothing there. So, yeah, there is kind of a price to pay for that uh, in Here's a sense. A that's a good story to know, though. Yeah, it, it is. Um, ha- have you have you been in the process of writing a book, and you're three quarters of the way into it, and then you read a, a, another book and go, "Shit, it's the same story. I've put in six months. What? How do I revise this?" That's why it's not good to read other books when you're writing. <laughs> no. Um... No, I've, I've, not because of those reasons. I once abandoned the book, and it's funny, I got too much in my head, so a lot of stuff I forget. So I can't, I do remember I was in the middle of writing a book when the, the massacre at Sandy Hook of all those kids happened. Mm-hmm. It's somewhat akin to what I was writing, and I thought this is not the right story to put out now. So I abandoned that book. Another time I had the Neil Simon thing, but I was way more than 30 pages in. I was like 180 pages in to something and I just felt it wasn't working and I abandoned that. But then maybe four years later, I reread that stuff and saw another path I could take. And so I kind of salvaged that book. Let's talk about your transition into television. So Bosch became a series and you were involved with it. What kind of adjustment was that from working alone 
to suddenly being in a room with a lot of collaborators. It was interesting and fun. I mean, it was, it kind of reminded me of being in a newsroom because there's a lot of, as you know, there's camaraderie, there's pranking, there's joking, there's discussion um, on a high level, you know, uh, you know, discussion about character and, and what's going on in the world and how that fits in what you're trying to put into scripts. So it was a refreshing change after about 20 years of very solitary professional situation where, you know, I'd walk down the hall of my house and go into my office and I'd be in there all day by myself. So it was, a, it was kind of a welcome change. It was a good thing for me to have at that time. And, uh, you know, that was about 11 years ago when all that started. Um, so that was an easy transition. Um, in fact, it was a more difficult transition for me 30 years ago to leave the newspaper. And, you know, that but then the L.A. Times was fat and happy. It was very profitable. It was a different time because the Internet hadn't really changed everything. And so I went from a very, uh, very crowded newsroom, like 90 reporters. Back then, the keyboards on computers were very loud. Just a lot of noise and a lot of talk and a lot of camaraderie and fun and throwing tennis balls across a, you know, a gigantic office to the sports guys and so forth um, to being alone in a room. Um, and that was very difficult for me. Whereas, you know, jump ahead to about 11 years ago and I go from that solitary work ethic to uh, sitting in a room with eight or nine other people. To me, it was, wow, this is fun. It's kind of interesting in looking at the first few seasons of the TV show Bosch. It's like you took elements from one book and combined them with elements of another. Uh, it, it was it was kind of interesting as I'm watching the show. I'm going, oh, okay, I remember that. Wait, but I don't remember that with this thing. Uh, that was kind of interesting the way you guys plotted that. Yeah, well, it was kind of a rare situation because by, you know, Bosch had been around in several starts and stops in terms of him moving towards becoming a movie, actually, um, all through the 90s and into the early part of this century. And uh, so then, Alex Trebek wasn't available, I guess. He was too busy doing Jeopardy. He couldn't make the time. Rocky Harmon wasn't around either. Yeah. But um, so by the time this all happened, I had pretty much given up on Bosch ever ending up anywhere in Hollywood. Um, and then it was just through a former publisher who worked at, who left publishing uh, in New York and became a consultant to Amazon publishing. And he told me they're starting this streaming service where they're going to make their own shows. And so I got in very early into that. And, um, at that time, there were a lot of Bosch books. I think at that time, there was like 15 Bosch books. So it felt like we'll never run out of material. And and my deal was only the first year had to be based on a book. They didn't have to base anything after the first season on books, but they had all the books. They bought the rights to all the books. So we, uh, Eric Overmeyer, who's the showrunner um, and co-showrunner on the spinoff, you know, I just said, take what you need. And we didn't start with the first book because Eric really wanted a very personal uh, story. And he chose one uh, that he thought worked best. It was actually, I think, 
the seventh or eighth book in the Bosch series called City of Bones. And, mm-hmm. you know, he did a big study of what was available. And he said, this one where he connect, where it's about the uh, death of a young boy um, who was pretty much abandoned and had a very similar uh, life to Harry Bosch. And he would connect on an emotional level to the case. I think that's where we start. And it was, I think it was a really brilliant idea. And uh, we kind of went from there. But we've always had that in the writing room. Uh, this is a way of making sure the writers know the world. It's like, start reading the books. Read all the books and take what you need and uh, or what works. And, you know, and, you know, it's always a discussion in the room. I want to, I, I like this plot line from this book. And we can wrap it around the plot line from that book. You know, we always have a kind of what we call a double helix going of two, at least two storylines wrapping around each other. I guess you never encountered a situation where Titus Welliver would come up to you as actors sometimes do and say, you know, my character wouldn't say that. Uh, You're you're like, buddy, I, I know that's this character. I've lived this character. Yeah. Yeah, no, he hasn't. He's come up to me and said, Bosch would not say that, but it's not something I've written. It's something in a script. And I I will agree with him. Uh, I really think he's the keeper of Harry Bosch. Um, you know, he now does all the books on audio. He's he's read all the books, obviously. He's got a great voice, too. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it's funny uh, talking about Rodney Harmon and Alex Trebek. <clears throat> when we cast Titus, he was actually the name I suggested. Not because I thought he looked like Harry Bosch, but I could see what was behind his eyes that he was carrying a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of ghosts back there, and and he could project that. And that's we were looking for the internal Harry Bosch to cast as opposed to a physical Harry Bosch, and and so I think he was really uh, genius casting. And he's you know it was his first lead after almost thirty years of kicking around as a character actor, so he's been all in from day one. And he knows the character at least as well as I. So it's not like an actorly conceit if he comes to me and says, this script doesn't feel like Harry Bosch. I want I want to change this or I think you need to change this or that. And um, and he's usually not usually he's always 100 percent right. And, and it doesn't happen a whole lot because the writers are also, um, you know, deeply entrenched in the books and the character. And so it's a. It's been working out really well, but um, definitely we listen to the actor's take on on this character. Now you're doing Lincoln Lawyer, which is also a terrific series. Yeah, they've done um, really well with that. And I have like the best of both worlds, as we've already talked about. Uh, Matthew McConaughey was fantastic. And then 12 years later, we make a TV show. And one of the first things Netflix said was we want to go with the Mexican American casting, which is in the book. We want to be true to the book. And uh, Manuel is much like Titus in that he's totally dedicated and all into the character. And he's constantly, you know, he's read all the books, but he's constantly exploring the character in, in discussions with uh, our showrunners and writers and me. Well, one of the things that you, you know, you're talking about, how you try to mix things up. And I've noticed in your books, number one, you have kind of a crossover world 
where characters come into other characters' books. And also, you change the style from time to time. You know, there's like, suddenly I'm reading Bosch, and there's a Bosch first-person book. Or there's a book from the point of view of two different characters that bounce back and forth. And I guess that really helps you, like you say, keep it fresh. Yeah, I think so. And I I think that changing narratives, narrators, comes out of my involvement in a TV show. You know, uh, the Bosch books up until the show were very, his view of the world, solo narrator for the most part. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, when you make TV, you, you got to spread the storytelling. You can't have your main uh, number one uh, in every scene. You know, kill the poor guy. You know, so, <laughs> so we had to, in the writing room for the show, we invent stuff that's not in the books. And that's about, like, his partner's life, his his lieutenant's life, his daughter. And we we, we jumped the narrative as all TV shows must do. And that kind of got into me as a writer. And so uh, most of the books I've written in the last decade have had multiple uh, narrators. I just finished a book that flips back and forth between Harry and uh, Mickey. How long are your manuscripts, your first draft manuscripts? First draft around 450, 440. what do you turn in? I try to turn in around 400. Um, usually it's in between 400 and 410. It's, I try to make them 100,000 words. Um, and also this is another effect from, I think, uh, writing TV. I'm more dialogue heavy in books and that makes a lower um, word count. So my last few books have still been over 400 pages in manuscript and also when they publish them. But then the word count has dropped below 100,000. It's usually in the mid-90s. Yeah, somebody said, well, you don't want to write a book that's so long that you can't read it on a coast-to-coast flight. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I'm not that fast a reader. (laughs) Well, the first Bosch book was actually quite long. Yeah, yeah, I mean, again, I didn't know what I was doing in terms of those kind of things. And, you know, I also wrote and overwrote that book. You know, part of it was probably I wanted to avoid getting in a position where I'm trying to sell it and facing rejection, possible rejection. So you keep overwriting a book and that adds adds to it. So that was probably the longest book I've written. And, you know, since then, I, you know, when when they sell that book, it's you don't have a contract. You're looking for a contract. After that, they give you contracts. You negotiate contracts for books you haven't written yet. And so my contracts ever since then have always uh, delineated that the books should be between 80,000 and 100,000 words. Yes. So what do you have on the horizon? Well, I have a book in the can right now. comes out in November called Resurrection Walk. And that's a bit, pretty much a Lincoln Lawyer book, but Harry Bosch plays a big part in it. I'm waiting for the strike to get over so we can get back to work on some TV. Because my, my cycle is usually I start writing in November or December and I turn in at the end of May. 
goes through an editing process, which is pretty much part-time. So it's the, the summer months are when I get involved in writing scripts and, and being in writing rooms and haven't had that this year. So my, my schedule is like totally upside down and I have a feeling the strike is going to end right about the time I should be starting to write a novel. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Well, do me a favor. Start writing the novel next week, if that's the case. Yeah, I can check my back pockets and see what I got. <laughs> I I pretty much know what I'm going to do next. And um, I have some it's a Renee Ballard book, and I have some time with the detective who inspired that character. Uh, we got to do a speaking engagement in San Diego. So I'm going to be in a car with her for like six hours and I'll get all my research done. That's great. Michael, thank you so much. This has really been a treat. And if you haven't read his books, read his books. They're terrific. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. That was a great interview with Michael Conley. I'd plug his books, but I just did that a few seconds ago. So that'll do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. As always, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolfer, Bruce, and Jason Miller. My email address, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Once again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where you can check out my New Yorker cartoons. Back next week with more right here on Hollywood and the Vine.